I want you to notice how Paul begins the prayer this morning in the text. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter one. In fact, we're finishing Ephesians chapter one. And Paul starts the text this morning saying, for this reason, I give thanks for you. Uh, And I told you guys last week, I have many reasons that I give thanks for you. And I want you to know, what is Paul, what is he thankful for? Anyone see it up there? Anyone see it now? What's he thankful for? The work of their faith. What else? The love for the saints. Because words can be cheap, right? Rhetoric can be rhetoric. And we don't want to be people that talk about the gospel. We want to be, our phrase around here is the living proof of a loving God. A living proof of the gospel. Now, Paul has been in Ephesians, writing to the church of Ephesus, encouraging us to think rightly. Encouraging us to understand that we are made alive, that we were dead, and that now we have life. And after 14 verses of theology, deep into the pool, changing the way our perspective is, changing the way we think, which for the record, this morning I learned something. You can change the way that you think. Remember the first time we did that song, Come Thou Fount, and how awkward it was? Do you remember that? Remember the second time we sang that song and how awkward it still was? This is the third time. It wasn't as awkward. Michael, thank you for leading us in worship and for leading us. And he puts that pause between those words so that we can stop and think. And I think that's what Paul is trying to do for us right now in Ephesians. He's trying to get us to not just go through the motions, to not just do a shoebox this season, but to say, can I think rightly? Can I view life from God's perspective? And can I be a part of what God's doing and taking us who are dead and making us alive? So Paul writes all this theology in verses one through 14. And then this immediately moves him to actually pray for the church. Now he starts praising God for the church. That's what Danielle and Hannah and we all just read this morning. I thank my God for you and all of my remembrance of you, because when I think of you, I think of all the good things that you've done. And that the gospel is moving forward because of you. So Paul moves and and he's brought to praise and then he moves to pray. And here's what Paul prays. Paul knows that Christians will only understand the great spiritual truths when the spirit of God himself enlightens them. One of the phrases I found myself using a lot, and I didn't realize I was using it until someone said, hey, you've been using this a lot. You have those moments in your life? But I, I guess I say a lot, this is a God thing. Have you guys heard me say that? Maybe I don't say it as much as I need to. This is a God thing. I want you to know the work of the Holy Spirit is a God thing. Taking things that were dead and making them alive. Is is that an us thing? No, here's what Paul says. This is not a natural thing. He says these things are not discerned naturally, but spiritually. And so his first prayer for his readers is that God would give them the spirit of wisdom so the eyes of their heart would be enlightened and that they would see, I think, these three things we're going to pull apart this morning. Hope their riches, and their power in Christ. Their hope, their riches, and their power. And that's Paul's prayer for us this morning as we open this book. Now, in your worship folders, I encourage you to pull it out. Hopefully, you got one as you walked in this morning. And in your worship folders, there's a little prayer card. Inside this prayer card, it's blank. Here's why. My prayer for you this morning is simply this, that you would grow in your hope, your riches, and the strength and the power of who God is in your life, but also that you would be moved at some point to pray for somebody else. That you would be moved to say, God, 
man, my life is changing. I'm growing. I'm stretching. Sometimes it feels like three steps forward, seven steps back, but I think I'm moving forward on this OST journey. And there's someone in your life, maybe they don't yet know Christ. Maybe they know Christ. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's someone on your pray watch list. But do we all need the spirit of God to enlighten our hearts so that we could see the hope, inheritance, and the power that we have in Christ? Does anyone not need that this morning? Does anyone in your life not need more of that this morning? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull out that card and put a name at the, at the card somewhere. There were pens on your seats as you walked in. Write a name down. And at some point in the service, I'm going to ask that God would speak to you and that you would start to pray for this person. And I want you to just write your prayer on this card at any point. At any point during the service, and in the for God box in the back, which is where we take our offering and whatnot, I want you to put those in there. And if you want, I want to covenant with you this week to be praying for this person, that God, in the power of the Spirit, would enlighten their hearts, that they might see the power of the inheritance and the hope that they have in him, or they can have in him, that they don't have access to. Now, as I encourage you to pray for them, let me pray that for us. Father God, thank you for these people. Thank you for Vintage Grace. Thank you that we are committed to being saturated in Scripture and to knowing you above any and everything else. Thank you that as we come to church in the morning, we expect that you will be there because you are everywhere. And I pray right now, Father, that you would speak to us through your Spirit, the Spirit of God who encouraged Paul to write this letter, illuminate it to us so that we might have our hearts enlightened, so that we might grow in our hope and our riches and in the power that we have in you. And all of his people said, amen. I want you to notice, as we look at the Bible this morning, we're in Ephesians chapter one. I'm on page 837, if you're following along in our church Bibles. If not, it'll be on the screen for you. But I want you to notice the power of Paul's prayer and the flow of Paul's thought getting to this point. One through 14 was all about theology, thinking rightly. Who are we in Christ? We were dead and now we're alive. Remember the, the, the emblem here we've used. We were chosen, we're redeemed, we're rich, and we're confident because we're sealed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul has been saying all these things, and this leads him to pray. And the first thing he says in his prayer is, is who gets glory? You have things in your life that make you excited. What are some of those things? Someone say the San Francisco Giants. The Cardinals, the Giants. Okay, hold on. This is the house of God. Pagans are allowed to be here. But things that just get you excited, I want you to notice. What gets Paul excited in the morning? What gets Paul pumped up? Yesterday morning, Braden woke up and he's like, oh, I'm tired. Anyone here say they're tired every morning? Or is that just my family? But when I'm in Hawaii, I'm never tired. I can go to bed super late on vacation and wake up super early and I'm not tired. Why? Because I'm excited. Because there's something going on that day that I need to be ready for. Brothers, sisters, I'm convinced we miss this in the gospel. We miss that every morning God is doing something and his mercies are new and he's doing something in our life. Here's what gets Paul excited. The gospel's going to advance today. Now, where's Paul sitting as he writes this letter? He's in prison. He's writing this 10 years after he's been in Ephesus. And is Paul excited as he writes this letter? Yeah, absolutely 100% excited. And here's what he's excited about. The gospel's advancing. How does he know the gospel's advancing? 
because he's hearing stories of churches in Ephesus that are moving the gospel forward. Because we're hearing stories in Eldorado Hills about run for courage and about courage to be you and about shoebox and about men's golf tournaments. And we're hearing stories and they're not just activities, but they're gospel opportunities for the gospel to advance. And that gets Paul excited. Now, does Paul praise the church in Ephesus? Who does Paul praise in the beginning of this letter? Chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks, what? For you. Does he say, you know, Casey, I am so glad you graced me with your presence today. Thank you, man. Who does, who does Paul give all the credit to? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see the Trinity in there in verse 17? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the Father of glory might give you the spirit of wisdom and having revelation in the knowledge of him. He says all three, he says this, here's my prayer for you that you would grow in your OST. That's what Paul asked for the church in Ephesus. Paul says, you have been chosen by the Father. That was the first week. Paul says, you have been forgiven, redeemed because of the work of the Son. And Paul says this, you are sealed and confident because of the spirit, because God left you a helper that's greater than you. This is the text as Paul begins his prayer. And he says, I don't give, I don't cease giving thanks for you. Every time I think of you, I get giddy. I think Paul just says the gospel's moving and that's all I care about. So I'm sitting in prison. It doesn't matter. The gospel's moving forward. It really doesn't matter anything else that's happening because you can't stop the gospel from advancing. So Paul continues on in his prayer. And verse 17, I want you to know, is the object of his praise, God. You don't get any credit for your awesomeness. Who gets all the credit for your awesomeness this morning? God. Some of you are like, but Drew, I made it to church this morning. On time. Is that a big deal for some of you? You don't have to lie. I get it. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. Paul says, I give thanks to God every time I think of you. He's the object of my praise. And verse 19 is really the substance of his prayer. And he's really going to pray three things for these people. He's going to pray that they would increase in these three areas of, of their life. Here's the first one. Well, even before that, someone read this out loud for me. Thanks, Chris Love. Nice and loud. these three things. You guys know what the word enlightened means in the Greek? It means to bring light. Write that down in your notes. See, here's Paul's prayer for the church, that they would be enlightened, that they would start to see, and this is a God thing. This is God granting us the wisdom to think differently, to see correctly, and that they would start to see and actually believe the hope to which they were called the riches of their faith because they're chosen, redeemed, and rich, and that they would actually see that they can have confidence in Christ in incredible ways because of who he is in them. 
This morning, my prayer is that we see that. Here's the first one, the hope that we are called to. This is what the text says specifically, that they might see and that they might know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, I want to think about this process of salvation we talked about last week. And if you weren't here last week, I'll I'll put a picture up, up on the board. But how important is hope? You ever have moments in your life when just things aren't going your way? When things go on and on, I mean, hypothetically, like an 18-inning baseball game, and it just doesn't end, and it goes on and on, and you're wondering, is there any hope? If you missed the Giants game yesterday, it was an awesome game. It was awesome because they won. But now, if I would have told you in the ninth inning, hey, the Giants are going to win, don't worry about it, what would that have done to your stress level, some of you? Would it have simplified your life a little bit? See, I think here's what Paul says. We hope for things often because we don't know if they're going to come true. We hope for things. We wish upon a star. We put things on our Santa list. We do all sorts of things. We leave clues for our husband at anniversary times, right? We hope that they might get the idea. I want you to see here, what is it that Paul is praying for these people? He's praying that their eyes, their hearts would be enlightened, that they would start to see rightly. And what? What about their hope does he want for them? He wants them to be confident. He wants them to know what God has called them to. Are there moments in your life when you look at your life and you say, is this really what God wants for me? This is where we left last week in the text. God, is this really what you have for me? Now, what is God consumed with and focused on above any and everything else so far in this, in this book? What does he want the most of? He wants his glory. Here's what gives us hope and confidence. That on Good Friday between noon and three, on a cross that that we would often look at as, as Calvary, he died for you and me, and at that point, he attached his glory to who? To those of us who would believe in that resurrection. He said, nothing is gonna happen in your life that I'm not in the middle of. Nothing. And that's what gives you hope. As I was listening to that interview from Jenny Williamson on the radio a couple weeks ago, Jenny talked about what often these women lacked as they were literally sold into sex slavery. She said they had no hope. Many of the women, if you just would have told them that in in some period of time you would be set free, they would have lit up. But they've had the hope beaten out of them. They've had the hope taken away. They've been told that they don't, that they're not worth anything. They've been told that they're not valuable. And I think that's a message that we clearly see in the world. They've been told that they have no hope for a future. That runs contrary to Jeremiah 29, 11. They've been told that there is no tomorrow, which is contrary to what God gives us in Christ. And this morning, here's Paul's desire, that you this morning would know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the hope to which he has called you. That you would know that tomorrow is coming and that the gospel will advance and that what's going on in your life is not outside of God's control that you would be confident, that you would be able to look at your circumstance and say, God is in even this. You see, the hope that he's called us to, and this is that picture from last week, and I don't know if my laser pointer is going to work this morning. Anyone see a red dot? Let's try this side. Oh, okay. This is the hope that God has given us in Christ. 
that we've crossed this line, that we've become him. But the hope of the cross is not simply that Jesus died for us to save us from sin, but the hope of the cross is that he's died for us and has saved us from sin that we can live for something else. This is the hope that he's called us for. We call it OST. It's on the other side of the cross. It's when the unemployment checks stop coming. It's when the divorce gets finalized. It's when there's a massive gap between your present state and your desired state that I'm convinced that's when Satan whispers, just like Jenny said, they tell these women that are sold into slavery, you're not valuable. You don't matter. And that's why Paul writes this letter, because that's just not true. Paul says, in Christ, you are rich, you are loved. So Jenny will talk about to, to, to her gals at these houses that she runs. She'll say things. Our goal is to help these women understand that they were loved before they thought they were worthy of loved. That they were chosen before they thought they were worthy of being chosen. That they were cared about when they didn't know anyone knew them. And this morning, I'm convinced Paul writes to Ephesus, and he just simply says this. I want your hearts to be enlightened because there's so much junk in our life that there's times that we miss the hope that God's called us to. He didn't just save us from hell. He saved us for heaven. And heaven, the kingdom of God, is not simply future tense. It's also now. It's present but not yet complete. And this is why Paul writes this letter to say, brothers, sisters, don't stop. Don't give up. Some of you will die for your faith. Some of you, things will not go the way that you want. But my prayer is this, that you would understand the hope that you have in Christ. Here's the second thing he prays for us. The riches of our inheritance. He says, I want you to be hopeful. I don't want you to be, to be willy-nilly, to be wishing on a star. I want you to be confident. I want you to know the hope that he's called you to. But even beyond that, I want you to know that in Christ you are rich. Here's how he says it. I want you to know What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints? Now, this was two weeks ago. This is right here in the cross. Remember, this is our icon for this session. Chapter one's ending this week. It's the cross. Next week, we'll move on to to the wrench there and the work of God. But right now, it is the cross. And he says, I want you to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, we talked about riches a couple weeks ago. But someone sent me this note about a woman in Minnesota. Who here from Minnesota? Viking fans out there? couple of us. Packers, that was painful on Thursday. Woman in Minnesota in the 30s. You guys have heard of the Great Depression? Coming out of the Great Depression. And a woman in Minnesota in the 30s went to the bank. And she pulled out this piece of paper that was ragged. And she went to the teller. And she said, I'm really sorry. I can't actually pay for my life insurance policy anymore. Things have been really hard. And the, and the teller said, I'm really sorry to hear that. Let me look at the policy. And, and the teller opened it up and he looked at the policy and he said, you know, this is really valuable. This is worth a lot of money. H- have you and your husband talked about not renewing this? Because this is, this is significant dough. And the gal says, no, 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 you don't understand. The reason why I can't afford it anymore is because my husband passed away three years ago. And I can't afford to keep paying for this because I'm barely making ends meet. My kids don't have food. I can't pay for a life insurance policy. And the teller says, wait, wait, wait. Your husband died three years ago? The woman says, yes. And he quickly checks the records. It wasn't on the computer, but he checks the records. And he comes back and he says, he says, ma'am, this policy was for your husband's life. You don't have to pay anymore. If he died three years ago, we owe you money. Imagine what she felt like. She realized she's been paying for these three years for a life insurance policy that had already come due. 
that she already had because her husband died. So they wrote a check immediately for the three years of payments that she had made. She said, we hadn't eaten for a week. We got to eat food that night. She said, beyond that next month, the check started to show up for the payments of his life insurance policy. See, brothers, sisters, I am convinced this morning, many of us, we're trying to pay checks. We're trying to, to, to pay a policy on something that Christ cashed on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. See, we're paying this thing as if we think we owe God something, as if we think that we have anything to bring to the equation. But this is what the teller clearly told the woman. You don't have to pay anymore. You're the one that gets the inheritance. You're the one that gets everything, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us and in us for the cross. He paid that for us. And I think it's tragic when we live as Christians and we're trying to be a good Christian. We've used that phrase before, right? I just want to be a good Christian. A good Christian is a sinner saved by grace. A good Christian is someone who recognized that they have nothing to bring to the table. And yet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords says, Rob, I love you. You're mine. And I find value in you, even if no one wants to sit by you on Sunday. You're mine. I care about you. I love you. So brothers, sisters who treasure Christ, stop trying to make payments on your Jesus debt. He set you free from that. He made you alive. There was nothing you could have done. And I imagine the relief of this woman once she realized that she went home and she got to tell her kids, guys, we get to eat tonight. Jenny interviewed one of the gals that she got to have the privilege of of taking out of sex slavery. This was in Sacramento, guys. Taking her out of sex, being a sex slave and into one of her courage homes. And they interviewed this gal on the radio and she called Jenny mom. And you heard this affection because this woman, she thought she wasn't worthy of love. And now this gal, Jenny, invested in her life. God used Jenny to save her and to change her, not just from sex slavery, but the gal tells the story. She discovered the love of Christ. She was thankful to be taken out of the life that she was living, but even more so she understood that now she had life everlasting. So Jenny, I was asked the question, they said, Jenny, so what do you do with these women as you get the privilege of being used by God to save them? What do you do with them? And she says, we just love them. And the gal says, no, 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 that's not all she does. And the guy on the radio goes, "Uh uh-oh, this is off script. But let's go because this sounds fun. And it's like 5.30 in the morning, so no one's listening anyways. She goes, well, what do you mean? And the gal goes, no, 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 this isn't all that she did. She didn't just save me from living this life, but she gave me a new life that she called me to. See, all those women that are saved through the courage houses, they're all now being used by God to help save other women. Does it sound like the gospel? Does it sound like what Christ has called us to? That we understand that we were dead and now we're alive? That we understand that we didn't do anything to set ourselves free and yet God calls us to a hope for us and he says, I want you to recognize the riches. And when you are rich, how do you use that money? How do you use the money that you didn't earn, that you didn't deserve, that's not yours, that's never gonna run out? How would you use that kind of money? Would you be generous? Would you be free to invest and to spend? This is what Christ is calling us to. He says, I want you to know what is the hope that he's called you to. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance? You didn't earn that. You were not a trust fund baby. 
You know those trust fund babies? Those people that went to USC? Where's my USC friends? Go cow. Those people that you're like, you didn't do anything. And this woman that came out of Courage House, she says, I didn't do anything, but God saved me. And now all I want to do is be used by him to save others. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the enlightening of our hearts so that we might know that we are chosen, that we are redeemed, that we are rich, that we are confident, and that we are enlightened. That is the gospel. The third thing he prays is this that we might know the immeasurable greatness of the power of Christ. He says, have the eyes of your heart and learn that you might know what is the hope which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious grace and inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those of us who believe. How great is God? How great? Indescribable. That'd be a great song. We should write it. Indescribable. Unbelievable unchangeable, bigger than you can imagine, immeasurable greatness of the power towards those of us who believe. Now, Paul is going to go on and explain just four examples of this. He's going to do it quickly. Now, I don't want you to miss in this next paragraph these four things that Paul says. Paul says, God is immeasurably great. Many of you, we've talked about this before, Paul writes this book to change our center of gravity because our God is too small. The one thing I continue to learn at Vintage Grace is my God is too small. Not because he's literally too small, because in my mind, I've made him too small. He's immeasurable in his greatness. So there's four things I want you to notice that Paul says that God does in his son, just as an example. Here's the first one. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those of us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ? What's the first one? When he raised him from the dead. Does that sound pretty cool? I've told you guys I've tried to walk on water before. I've looked at some of the miracles of Christ as an immature, new in my believer faith. And I'm like, God, what is it like to have this kind of power? Does anyone know? Here's what Paul tells the church of Ephesus. Brothers, sisters, here was just one example of the power that God has. He spoke the world into existence. He has the power of life. And he has the power over life. And he says this, he called him from the dead. Paul says it this way. He says, hey, if the crucifixion and the resurrection isn't true, this faith is no good. I appreciate some of you. Some of you come to church every Sunday, and on a very fundamental level, you're just trying to figure out who this Jesus is. Because you see something like this, and you say, I've never seen someone raised from the dead. I don't know if I buy it. That's a great question to ask. My prayers of vintage grace, if you're seeking, if you're wrestling, if you're thinking deeply, this is a safe place for you to come and ask those kind of questions. Because this is huge. Because let me be very clear. I believe it to be true. Good Friday, Jesus died for you and me. And on Sunday, he rose again, which is part of why when they come to the empty tomb, the, the guy, Jesus just simply says, so what are you seeking? Don't you know that my father has the power to raise from the dead? W- what are you seeking? The Savior's gone. The Savior's risen. The Savior's alive. Here's the second thing. Not only does he have resurrection power, but then he takes him and he seats him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The significance, I think, here is just simply this. Paul says, not only did Jesus raise from the grave, but he got put at the most important spot. What is Jesus doing right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing? He's interceding for me. I don't mean to be selfish. I just know he is. 
and for you. He's spending time saying, Father, the Olsons, they need your love this morning. The Sodastroms, the Wilkes, they need your grace. They need to understand that you love them more than they can understand. They need to be pressed. They need to be encouraged. They need more faith. Father, when they sin, I want you to see me in their life, not them. Because in me, they're chosen. In me, they're rich. That's where Jesus is. It's not just that he raised from the dead and he saved us from hell and the wrath of God, but it's that he saved us for relationship with him. Here's the third and the fourth thing, not just resurrection power in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. But then the third and the fourth is that he put all things under his feet. How many things? All things under his feet, and he gave him his head over what? All things. It's not just resurrection power. There's a ruling power that Jesus has that allows us, I think, to stay alive, that allows us to not experience the wrath of God on a moment-by-moment basis, that allows us to be reconciled to the Father. This is the power of Jesus. This is the immeasurable greatness of God that we even have breath this morning in him. And this is what Paul wants us to see this morning. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. There's no other reason why we're alive this morning, physically, let alone spiritually, apart from the blood of Jesus. This is as Paul finishes chapter one. This is why the icon for chapter one is the cross. Because we need it. In life group this last week, it came up in our life group that Some people in my life group, they need to hear the gospel every single day. You know who needs the gospel every day? Me. We. You. Because we tend to forget. We tend to live in our insecurities. We tend to live trying to appease somebody, trying to prove something, trying to pay off our Jesus debt. And this morning, you need to hear the gospel. You are rich, you are chosen, you are redeemed because of the blood of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Stop making payments on your life insurance policy that he already paid for and that he cashed on Good Friday. He's alive, he is risen. He is risen. He's risen indeed. I need that. Why? Because the way I live my life doesn't always reflect a risen Savior. The way I live my life when the bad news comes and I start to worry and I start to stress and I start to freak out, it doesn't reflect that I'm a child of God and that I'm chosen and that I'm set apart and that I'm a saint. I start to communicate to God in my heart that God, when the car blows up, you must not be present. And God's like, it's a car. I died on the cross. And I rose. I'm going to invite the ushers forward right now for communion. I want us to take some time this morning and understand who we are in Christ. Now, we're going to do communion differently this morning. We do communion differently almost every week, it feels like. Try to keep you on your toes. This morning, as the ushers go, they're going to pass the elements I'm going to ask you to grab the elements and not take them together. I ask you just to hold on to them. Because as we look at this slide, 
What did God do in giving Jesus the rule? He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who is all in all. This morning, I don't care if you're a Dodger fan, Chris Love. I don't care if you're rooting for the Chiefs this morning. I don't care if you live in Orange County. I don't care where you're from. If you treasure Jesus because of the cross, the work of God has united all things in heaven and on earth, under the name of Jesus. So as we pass the elements, I'm going to ask you to grab a cup, to grab a wafer, and to just hold on to it. Don't be in a hurry. The game's not till 1.30. And then I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to just sit with Jesus. I'm going to ask you to pray that you would recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to pray that you would recognize Christ for what he has done, that you are redeemed, reconciled, and restored. I'm going to pray that not only that we would start to think rightly, but that we would start to conform more and more to the image of Christ. And I'm going to pray that the eyes of your hearts and my heart would be enlightened and that you would feel the awesome call and destiny that is ours in him. So take these elements, hold them, and pray this prayer right now. I don't know for sure what you came this morning expecting anticipating, asking God for. But I do pray that you hear this loud and clear. He loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. He is Jesus Messiah. He saw you when you thought you weren't worth anything. That was before the foundations of time, Paul says. Before creation, he knew you. Heck, before creation, he knew where you would be today. He knew you'd be a vintage grace, and he would know that you would need to hear more than anything else this morning that you are loved, that you are saved, that you are sanctified, that you are set apart, and that you, this morning, in spite of you, are a saint. that you are redeemed, that you are reconciled, and that you are restored. Jesus, on the night in which he was going to be betrayed, gathered his disciples. Guys like Peter that were idiots. Guys like Judas that would betray him. Gathered everybody who was closest to him, and he said, guys, This is my body. It's a symbol, it's a sign, and it's broken for you. And this is my blood, which will cover you, which will be a symbol as you take this and as you remember me. You're why I came. You're why I created. You're why I conquered so that I could have a relationship with you. If you treasure Christ this morning, we're going to commune a little differently. I'm going to ask you to stand right now. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to repeat these words after me if you treasure Christ. Because if you don't treasure Christ, the words aren't true. But if you treasure Christ, I'm going to repeat these words after me. I am redeemed. I am reconciled. And I am restored. Because he is Jesus Messiah. Take this in remembrance of that truth.
Jesus, thank you for your blood. Thank you for your body. Thank you for the fact that we don't have to pay on a life insurance policy that we can't afford to pay for. Thank you for the fact that you died and you loved us while we were still yet sinners and you gave us life. Love so amazing. Enlighten our hearts this morning to receive that truth and to understand who you are. To understand that, oh, precious is the blood that gives us not just resurrection power, but restoration power, and that by your ruling power, we have life. We pray this in your name, amen. In the middle of that prayer at the end, it says this, that Jesus has ruling power above all authority, power, and dominion. Now, for those of us this morning, that might not mean a whole lot. But for the church of Ephesus, where the the goddess of Artemis and, and all of the gods of the Roman Empire were worshiped and were feared, and most of these Christians in Ephesus, they may have at one time worshiped these other names. In fact, they may have been told that they should fear these other names. That these names were names that were against their God. That these names had power and control over them in their city. And when the name of Jesus came, here was Paul's message to them. Because of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things in the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Brothers, sisters, this morning, I want us to call on the name of Jesus. Because there's power in his blood, there's power in his body, there's power in his resurrection, but there's power in his name. And his name is higher than any other name. See, as I watched the game last night and Brandon Belt came to the plate, and I'm like, oh man, I sure hope he, he, he I actually hope he got hit. That's what I was hoping for. I wanted a base runner. See, our hope is not in Brandon Belt. Our hope is not in our righteousness. Our hope is in his righteousness. Our hope is his name so that when you stand before your creator and before your maker and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? There's only one name that counts. It's Jesus. And before that day, when you go home and you and your wife disagree and your kids don't act holy and your boss is your boss, there's only one name that matters in that context. That's the name of Jesus. Father God, we worship your great name right now. Your name is above every name. Your kingdom has come, and we live in that power today. Help us to believe it. Help us to receive it. Help us to live in it. Help us to live through it. Be glorified, I pray, in the name of Jesus, his people said.